Welcome to another episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Revolution Radio. Making smarter financial decisions with your host, Rob Nelson, former Fox News host and anchor at Roundtable Media with his team of market masters, Mark Lepresti, Managing Director of Mineta Advisory Partners, co-founder of Battlefin, leading data platform, and a former institutional equities trader at Lehman Brothers. Alex Massioli, founder of Trade the Chain, former head of institutional prime brokerage at Bquant. John Nigerian, co-founder of Market Rebellion, former co-host of Halftime Report on CNBC, and co-founder of Option Monster and Trade Monster. Daily data insights and ticker updates direct from three of the world's top TradFi legal and crypto experts on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain every Monday and Friday on all your favorite platforms. Let's get started. Welcome, B3 Nation. This is Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Twitter Spaces. We do this every Tuesday, Thursday, with a weekend edition on Sunday at 5.30 Eastern Time. Thanks for joining us here at GetRev Radio. Please take a second and follow us. It means a lot when you follow us. And uh, share the space and follow all of our hosts. We've got a fun, big show coming up today. We've got a special guest, Market Master Thomas A., is going to help us figure out what's going on in the bond market. We're going to be talking about a credit event, what it means for stocks. We're going to be talking about a yen carry trade. We're going to we're, we're going to be talking about that couple, that hundred plus thousand Bitcoin, two hundred thousand Bitcoin that went missing um, eight years ago. And we're we're going to really dive in. We chart it, we track it, and then we talk about it. So good to have you all with us, B three Nation. And uh, thanks to our sponsor, Century Group, Twenty uh, Second Century Group. John Nigerian, tell us a little about them. Why don't you tell us about 22nd Century Group? Because you never had. I thought you'd never ask, Rob. This is, of course, folks, just in full disclosure, this is a sponsored spot. This is part of our small cap spotlight. We featured 22nd Century in our small cap spotlight two Sundays ago. That's a segment that we're going to do, I think, every Sunday where we feature an interesting high growth company that we have uh, vetted and uh, interviewed staff and looked at the technology. Uh, yes, as I said, this is a, a sponsored spot. And I know that producer Patrick has a disclaimer somewhere there up in the crow's nest, uh, but we do take an approach to these companies, a trained investor's eye approach to these companies um, and try to only bring you the good stuff. This is a really, really interesting company that's got uh, technology, agricultural technology, it's kind of an ag tech play. I know that's a very popular category in these days for uh, creating um, low nicotine cigarettes. And you might say, well, geez, why would anybody do that? And the answer is it's actually a means to have uh, people who smoke. And I know I see you take a pop every now and then, Rob, as I've been known to do, sadly, but in full candor to the B3 audience. This is a, a cigarette that is designed to help people cut back and eventually quit smoking uh, by having a very, very low and lower and lower doses of nicotine. It's a great alternative to the patch that just keeps pumping you full of that drug. And, you know, I went to a doctor's office checkup day before yesterday, Rob, and the doctor told me that nicotine is actually a more powerful drug than even heroin or cocaine in terms of its uh, the, the dosage and how strong it is. I did not know that. Um, this is a very interesting company, very interesting product. The product is out there in major convenience store uh, retailers, um, and we think it's uh, it's got some potential. 
So go ahead and check it out. XXII is the symbol on the NASDAQ. We're talking about show sponsor, 22nd Century Corp. Again, that is a sponsored spot, small cap spotlight. Thank you for listening. But you know what? We you put your money where where our words are, so to speak, and that's a great thing about right. everybody out there. It's like you know, yes, they're our sponsor, but you're invested in them, meaning you believe in that sponsor, which is more than a lot of a lot of shows can say that they're, they may not give a crap about their sponsors. You're like, no, we're yep. actually putting our money in them. <laughs> so yeah, and 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 you know, these are these are long term plays. We're not, you know, this is this is not like you know, LFG. Let's go. The stock's going to rock to the moon on Tuesday. This is not a meme stock. This is one that you know will take some time to fully develop its potential as they scale out their distribution to want to check out and and keep an eye on. So um, let's jump in. Um, I know we're waiting for Thomas A. to join us. John Nigerian just made it in. Good to have you with us, John. There he is. Good John. Dr. J, welcome in. We know you're heading to the airport. If it's a day that ends in day, Rob, I'm set. I'm heading to an airport somewhere. And he to an airport somewhere. Um, Mark, only on days that end in what? It's a day that ends in day. He's worse than me. Right. Um, Mark, while we're while we're at it, let's talk. And we're going to get into all this stuff. What's happening with Fitch downgrading? You, you know, the, the U.S. credit. Um, but yeah. the S and P five hundred dropped again, and, and that yes. that wasn't connected to that, right? That's that's something else going. Well, I think it was, and and I don't want to jump the shark because we we do, and I almost kind of called today's show, uh, you know, the credit of that special report. Um, there is a lot of really funky, really interesting, and frankly, really scary stuff going on in Treasury bonds, the credit world in general, and, and we're going to cover that. I believe that the pressure on the market uh, has been not only that. Uh, Fitch downgrade, but the Treasury announcing that they're going to sell another $108 billion in the U.S. Treasuries, what that's done to the 10-year. Uh, all of those things, and again, not to jump the shark, but all of those things tend to happen around concerns of persistent inflation and actually tend to help perpetuate persistent inflation as well as further credit contraction, difficulty in obtaining credit, not only for consumers, but for corporations on reasonable terms. That's bad for equities. But you're right, Ralph. The S&P ticked down for a third straight day after we had just a rock in July as the street not only assessed what's going on in credit markets and bond market, but also corporate earnings, which have started to get a little bit of a mixed bag. We started out fairly strong. We started out with a majority of beats or meets versus misses. We talked in the last show or two shows about how the street's actually been punishing companies that meet or beat expectations on that forward-looking, fairly negative and fairly conservative guidance. The S&P closed the day down 25 basis points to 4501 spot 19. The Dow lost 66 Spot 63 points, just shy of 20 basis points to end the day at 35, 215, spot 89. And the NAS down the lowest of the three, uh, just spot one to 13, 959, spot 72. That 10-year did pop today, uh, starting even actually in the pre-trading uh, around 4.8%, highest level since November of last year. That put pressure on the real estate uh, sector. Not hard to understand that. We saw the VIX spike to the highest level since the spring. Since June, utilities got hammered. That sector lost 2.3%. Uh, we're going to cover, again, all the stuff that happened in bonds. We're, of course, waiting. Didn't see it before we went live. Waiting to see if Coinbase 
announced its earnings there are due, of course, after the close. We've been following that bearish put spread that John and I put on a couple of weeks ago around the one-on-one level, which we shared with the B3 Nation. Man, oh man, that thing has traded from the 89 low today to 101 in, in the in the post, uh, back down into the low 90s. It was around 92 when I looked at it before we went live, anxiously awaiting earnings and comments from CEO Brian Armstrong. But I've said too much. I'm going to pass it over to market master Dr. John Ajarian. John. Well, uh, thank you, Mark. Um, doing a lot of uh, after-hours trading today, trading a little bit in that Coinbase um, trading a lot in Amazon because, boy, did they blow it out. I mean, stock traded through, I think, 140 in the after hours, still trading 138. Um, that's a big jump in the after hours. Uh, all three, earnings, uh, profit, well, let's call it profit, revenue, and guidance were all really positive over at AMZN. And that's one that we've shared with the B3 Nation that we had bullish spreads on and that, and those are bearing some nice fruit tonight. Um, Apple had just positions, but no uh, position into the earnings. In other words, just I'm, it's my biggest position um, on long um, Apple stock and just short calls uh, against it. But that's not a bearish trade. It's just a revenue generation through a, what all of you on the call know as a covered right. Um, still love that. And um, it could it could um, trade down to, you know, about that 182 level. It's nowhere near that right now. I think it's trading 187. But um, I think the, uh, uh, the fact that most of the calls I've written are 190s, 192. Uh, and 195s, those look like they'll all, um, you know, be worthless based on where the earnings are and where the reaction is to Tim Cook saying, expect about a 1% decline um, in the coming quarter. Um, and he hasn't, I haven't been able to listen to what he's saying beyond that. But um, let me see what else, Mark. Um, and uh, doing a little trading in Dorsey's stock, he seems to be a pretty big beneficiary of revenue into uh, Block, which is still symbols SQ, like Square. Um, but he is uh, saying about half of his rev came from Bitcoin, um, which is surprising. And, uh, you know, that could be why um, we could expect even more comments from uh, Brian Armstrong about the quarter not being as stellar because Jack Dorsey apparently is his competition. <laughs> so interesting and you know we'll in the bitcoin in the crypto section john we're going to talk a little about you know dorsey and block you know the, how much they half their half their stuff is uh is bitcoin um and, and i just want to let everyone know thomas says joined us tom we'll get to you in a minute we're going to do a crypto overview first um it'll be great to john to have to have tom's insight also on of um, course and, and you know we're going to talk about it later everybody i like to tease a few things out but but uh you know, there's a farmer's almanac from like 100 years ago. There's a stock tr stock market almanac, and it doesn't bode well for the first few in the first week of August historically. And obviously, right now we're seeing that in the first you know two days, three days of August. Um, indeed, Rob, and you know, obviously the catalyst. I agreed with Mark that uh, the catalyst really is the Fitch downgrade. Um, 
And again, we we told uh, the group collectively, the B3 Nation, uh, that the last time we had a Fitch downgrade, we didn't see the uh, impact immediately, except for, of course, just a knee-jerk reaction. But it's what happens over the next several months. So over the next several months, the last time Fitch did this, um, we did see an 11% decline in the market. I think some people are getting a little nervous, um, even though Washington, D.C. wants to say, this is nothing. Don't pay any attention to it. Um, they're trying to say it's politicized. What? Really? When when you're running your debt up at this level, it's politicized to lower the uh, the debt rating on on your sovereign debt. I don't think so. John, I, I thought Yellen's comments were out, were out and out comedy, right? You know, trying to blame everything from the January sixth insurrection to probably crypto. I think the crypto community has something to do with what's happening with the Fitch downgrade as well. I'm I'm pretty sure we're going to hear that at some point, but we will. What John's talking about is is an important data point, and I'll pass it back to the crypto update. Rob, that happened in August of 2011, August sixth. So uh, almost uh, to the day, some 12 years ago, the VIX then spiked by 25% for the month of August. And the declines that were associated to the market reaction associated with that Fitch downgrade, actually it was S&P back in 2011, put very strong downward pressure on the markets back that year all the way through September. So uh, we're keeping a close eye to see if history repeats itself because sometimes it, it does. does. And listen, guys, everybody stick around through this whole show because we're going to get into all of this stuff and it's going to be a really interesting convo. Before we jump into the TradFi convo and Tom, I bring you in, Alex, let me just let you and Nick give us, you know, the high level, the high level pick on crypto, the market caps, Bitcoin, Ethereum, the standout stuff, all that. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, uh, not much has particularly changed since uh, we all last got together two days ago. Um, but right now we're sitting at about $1.17 trillion for total market cap, about par uh, for the day with the $28 billion in volume traded. Um, we speak about low volume trading a lot on this show. And one of the things I will say is it is working itself very effectively into the short position of coin. Uh, when they release earnings, we think that volume is actually going to have a lot to do uh, with their revenue numbers. Bitcoin, 29,290 uh, on par for the day, 12.4 billion in low volume trading. Um, Ethereum not faring uh, any better, par 4.5 million in trading volume. We do have one standout that's Telos sticker TLOS up 32% in 24 hours to 13 cents. Tweet volume up 120% on uh, the Trade the Chain dashboards, and trading volume up 488% with 8.9 million trading volume. TELUS has been around for a while, showing good alpha for the traders out there, um, but definitely want to let uh, Nick have a word on what the overall uh, market looks like for. Yeah, and hey, Nick, Nick, to the to his TELUS point, you know, we've talked a couple times now about TELUS and the GameStop thing. Do you think that's part of this or totally unrelated? 
Um, I did not see any news around it, you know, in, in the immediacy, but, you know, these things can sometimes, you know, uh, coagulate and, 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 and kind of blow up at, at random points in time. So, um, you know, maybe whale buys, you know, very early and then, you know, the, the slow creep goes up and finally it kind of hits that cascade. So I would say it definitely had a positive impact, but I can't pinpoint exactly what, uh, was the mover and shaker on that uh, asset today, but I do owe everything everyone uh, an apology for my analysis on Tuesday. I did not uh, predict Michael Saylor saying that he was going to buy $750 million worth of Bitcoin in an MSTR stock sale. Um, so I, we were, you know, looking for shorts on the last show, but we did end up taking longs on the confluence of the bearish trend break along with that news. Uh, and of course, we did break above 29.5k. So we got a nice trade up there down to 30 and traded that back down. Uh, but since since that happened, there has been pretty much no action on the charts outside of a few options like OP that is very much related to Coinbase's L2 base. So for Bitcoin, we're looking at the exact same numbers, Rob. 29.5K continues to be resistance. You saw we popped up to 30. We popped right back down to 29.5K and got shoveled down lower before uh, kind of condensing uh, around um, you know, 29.2, 29.3 as we speak. Uh, so we're still looking at those numbers for the bull and bear points and i would say I, I would like to say that i'm still feeling a bit bearish but this is a point in time where i truly do not know what's going to happen next we have insane amount of news around um you know the sec micro strategy and, and a bunch of other things around binance uh as well so it, it's really anyone's guess but you play the numbers you play the ranges and above 29.5 above 29.5k we're looking for longs below we're looking for shorts listen last last thing on this either nick or or Alex, you, you never want to bet against Michael Saylor and Bitcoin, right? But he just keeps, I mean, he is like, you know, and, you know, his decision to keep buying massive amounts of Bitcoin is, is bigger than just him, right? I mean, he's he clearly it's driving, it's, you know, it, he's seeing something. Well, I mean, I, who knows uh, if he's seen something or if it's exuberance. I will say, you know, this has been, MSTR has been more or less, uh, our regulated approved spot uh, ETF in Bitcoin. Um, earnings uh, very much reflect that. Uh, he's also been using up over the last couple of years a lot of leverage uh, within that company and the services they provide in order to acquire more for the Treasury. So um, right now he's winning the bet. He has been on the bottom side of that bet a few times, um, but overall he's winning. Also, if you go back, you know, three years ago, two years ago, when he would make announcements like this on the shareholder uh, meetings, it would move the markets, uh, the cryptocurrency markets. Um, now, it, it not so much. It still kind of does, but it, it's more or less baked in that Sailor's going to do something when he says he is. Interesting stuff. This is Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Twitter Spaces. We do it on Tuesday, Thursday at 5.30 Eastern. We do a Sunday weekend show, 5.30 Eastern as well. Here, all here at Get Rev Radio. Please follow us, tweet out the space, follow all our speakers, including Thomas A., who is uh, joining us. Tom, for, you know, it's really good to have you from the Sevens Report. Tom puts out great stuff every day, seven indicators you can look at, really keeps his eye on the global 
macro stuff. Tom, you know, Mark talked about the credit downgrade, you know, Fitch downgrading us. I don't want to drag everyone into too into the weeds of, of you know, what a credit downgrade is, but high level. But it, it is it is clearly now creating this issue of what people are calling a credit event. What's the significance? What's going on here? And then we'll get it. Just it'll be a great conversation for us all to have. Hey, guys, uh, thank you very much for having me back on. Always a pleasure. Uh, you know, I think that that the easiest way for a regular investor to think about kind of what does this mean is just look at the 10-year Treasury yield, right? That thing has moved up almost 40 basis points in, what, you know, two or three weeks. And if we get a hot jobs report tomorrow morning, it's going to move to a one-year high. And the reason that matters is because, obviously, higher interest rates are, are more of a burden on the economy, generally speaking, but they also directly pressure equity multiples, right? Which, which will create an additional headwind on stocks. So at the end of the day, to your point, you know, the, the, the politicization, and politicization of this, the weeds around the credit downgrade, people downplaying it, people saying it's long overdue. I mean, all that's going to be noise in the periphery. But if I'm sitting there, you know, as a regular investor, I'm saying, why does this matter to me? Keep your eye on the 10-year yield. The higher that goes, the more pressure we'll put on stocks, plain and simple. And and what, when we talk about a credit event, Tom, what does that mean? To, what does that actually mean? Why is it called the credit? So it can mean, it, it can mean a lot of different things, but, but literally what it can do is it can trigger forced selling or prohibit people from buying a certain debt security, right? So so people may have heard of something called like debt covenants, right? Well, these are essentially like rules that you have to follow, right? If you're buying this debt, if you're going to own this debt, and essentially what can happen is if I'm a fund and I say, well, I can only own, you know, AAA plus debt or AAA debt, and all of a sudden paper that I own gets downgraded to just, you know, double A, well, then I may be required to sell that debt, and it can create forced selling. Um, that, that I don't believe is happening in math for U.S. Treasuries at this point, but it is something to be aware of uh, because if all of a sudden uh, you, know, you have forced selling in Treasuries, obviously that's a big problem. The other side of it is that it may prohibit people from buying it as well, which obviously uh, it removes demand, and if you have a large amount of supply – and you have demand being reduced, right? What's going to happen to the price? It's going to go down. And since bond prices and bond yields are inverse, that means yields go up, higher interest rates, more of a headwind on the economy. So, Mark, and, and Tom, not a not a good thing when the Treasury announces, you know, one hundred and eight million dollars of new paper for sale. That's exactly right, Mark. I, I, I figured you, you would be on top of that because I knew you saw it. I mean, there, there is so much paper. And when we say paper, you know, that's Wall Street slang for treasury bonds for sale. So as, as a refresher, right, the government has to constantly sell bonds to fund its operations, right? And, and so they're always out there selling. I mean, think every week there's some sort of an auction, multiple auctions every week. Well, if all of a sudden, you know, bonds work like everything else in the world, it's supply and demand. If you massively increase the supply and demand stays you know, level or declines, what's going to happen to the price? It's going to go down. 
yields up. And and yeah, absolutely. This flood of paper we're seeing, this flood of treasury bonds is absolutely pushing yields higher. It's contributing to what we're seeing. Hey, Tom, this is John. Um, just a quick question about, did you see that uh, Ackman has put on a massive short through puts in the T-bills? Um, that, that was reported by our friend Genevieve uh, Roche-Dichter, and she was writing about that. And I said, in my opinion anyway, that's the way to do it. Because shorting the T-bills is great, but you can get blown out of that position pretty quick. Having a long put, you just have, you know, whatever the expiration is, and you've already defined how much you could possibly lose if you're wrong. If you short the bonds and they instead go the other way, you have no idea how much you could lose. John, you're absolutely right. And I and I definitely did see that. It certainly caught caught my attention. He's obviously been been very successful over the years and that uh, I'm I'm a simple soul. I like to follow people who make tons of money and necessarily to copy them as best as I can. Uh, and you know, it's it is a very good way uh to to essentially enact that opinion and that position because you're absolutely right. The leverage inherent in bonds can get real expensive real quick, especially if you don't, you know, fully understand it and are a very seasoned investor. That's why I love options for these sorts of, of directional sort of thematic plays, because if we're wrong, if something reverses, you know, if all of a sudden the growth data collapses in the next two weeks and people come in and buy treasuries, well, at least we know how much we can lose. And you're not sitting up there all of a sudden getting a margin call on your account. You're trying to figure out what. Hey, happened. Tom, does this have and what, what was really, sorry, Rob, what was also really interesting to me at the same time on that is you had Buffett announcing he's backing up the truck, Con, right? Conversely. So, you know, two of the allegedly greatest money masters out there basically uh, evincing some, some fairly uh, diametrically opposed theories on the direction of these treasuries. Well, and I think this is where duration comes into play right. in, a, in a big way, right? Um, and then this is important for investors. I mean, you know, in, in, in the 70s and 80s, I feel like bonds were sort of a, to a point kind of a much, uh, for lack of a better word, sexier market. They moved, the yields were high. And then in the 90s and 80s, it was all about equities. It's like bond people were sort of, you know, sort of, sort of the, the, the which side. Well, it seems like bond volatility is back in a big way. And so for investors, it really helps to familiarize yourself with the bond market by listening to shows like this and understanding about duration. And really what we're seeing is we're seeing tremendously heavy selling in the long end of the curve. What we mean by that is, is duration 10-year bonds, 20-year bonds. Uh, because people are going after that long-dated paper because guess what? The long-term fiscal outlook of the U.S. ain't that great, and the downgrade just highlighted it. So, you know, that Ackerman was shorting the 30s. Go ahead, Rob. I, I don't want to step on your guys' conversation. I just um, I just want to throw a few thoughts in in the middle of it um, to, to mix it a couple different ways, and we'll keep talking about this for a while. We may not get to everything else we want, but this seems like this is a highlight event. So, Mark, you know, I kind of want to steer this to you a little because you talk a lot about treasuries. You've talked about the inverted yield curves, all this stuff. We're looking at how this plays out, you know, and the options and all that stuff. How does it play out in the bigger picture? I mean, I know that the feds are going to say nothing to see here. We we know that. But what do you see? You know, how's the market going to look at this outside of the the treasury side itself, the treasury bills itself? I mean, is this is this something like this? 
that it slows things down. There's there's a hint of more depre- of a depression. It changes what happens with interest rate hikes or no hikes or none of the above. Uh, no, Rob. I mean, potentially all the above. Uh, uh, look, you're, the question you just posed is sort of the punchline, right? I mean, the finance bros, as, as my daughter would refer to us, you know, can can debate the difference in the yield curve and the 10-year versus two and shorting with options as this, that, and the other thing. But when I get asked the cocktail parties is, you know, Mark, I don't understand half of this fixed income stuff. What does it mean for stocks? And at the end of the day, if we're talking about more expensive capital, right? Prices, yields going up, you have two things that happen. One is money chases the higher yielding investment, right? As you see, Buffett backing up the truck and 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 buying, I think Buffett was buying the 10-year in huge, huge lots, chasing that yield. That money comes out of equities, right? So that's a problem for stocks. There's just less demand for capital flowing into equities. The other side of the problem is a continued and sustained high interest rate environment. And that's what we're focused on right now. It's not just whether or not we have one more 25 basis point cut, which I still believe, a hike, excuse me, which I still believe we do, not September. My numbers show me right now. It's looking like October, but it's for how long do we stay? We're at five spot five right now. We're at five spot seven five. How long will that condition remain as capital is extraordinarily expensive? That means it costs more money for companies to finance purchases, to hire employees, for supply chain, for everything, right? The American economy at the corporate level relies massively on credit. This is not a cash and carry, you know, uh, a corner bakery economy, Um, especially not when you talk about the names that make up, you know, the S&P and the other major indices. And, And the last thing I'll mention that I'm super concerned about, and I do hope we touch on the the what looks like the potential unwind of the yen carry trade, and, and that's an important one because a lot of people say, and I'm one of those, that a lot of the speculative riskier asset purchases in tech and other sort of risk-on components of the equity market have historically been fueled in part by the easy money uh, trade of the of the yen dollar carry trade, which we sh- which we can and should talk about. But what I'm also worried about is, look, the U.S. budget deficit right now is at 9% of GDP. And the longer we stay at 5.5 or, God forbid, go up to five and three quarters past the first quarter of 2024, and I don't see hikes coming before the end of Q1 of 2024, possibly into Q2 of 2024, we could be looking at interest payments alone on the national debt service adding another trillion dollars, trillion dollars to what this company, what this country, sorry for that Freudian slip, what this country owes, right, in terms of its debt service. If this was a company and not a country, this would be a penny. Well, Tom, Tom, to that point, to the idea of, you know, again, our debt, and, and our debt is all underlying this downgrade to begin with, our deficits, all of it, right? So, you know, that's that's a part of Fitch making the decision to downgrade. But what, you know, to, to, to what Mark's referring to, what happens? I mean, could we get downgraded more? I mean, do we get re-upgraded? How does this work? So, yeah, so... It's unlikely that they would downgrade the U.S. again because this was sort of a long-term, you know, comment essentially 
state of of the, the country, uh, fiscally speaking. It's it's unlikely that they would re-upgrade us because I don't think anybody is delusional enough to think Washington is going to change the way they do things anytime soon. What is more important is does Moody follow suit? That's what I think people are looking at now. So now do you have you know, all three rating agencies downgrading the United States sometime over the past decade, right? And what does that mean uh, for, for the fiscal situation? So as far as what comes next, you watch Moody's and see if they, they, if they follow the leader here and cut the U.S. again uh, on some sort of a similar thesis. And does that just add more and more pressure to treasuries and pushing yields up? And I think, Mark, your point about uh, higher for longer rates is so critical for people to understand. And, you know, the easiest way I, I, I explain this to people is if I give somebody, and I don't know anybody in, in class or in sports practice ever got in trouble, the teacher would make you stand up and they would say, they'd pick up your textbook and they'd make you hold it out straight, right, above the ground. You do it for five or 10 seconds, it's not very tough. You do it for two or three minutes and your arm is throbbing. It's the same thing with high interest rates. As long as it's kind of short and sharp, it's not the end of the world. But the longer it goes on, the more pain that it sort of uh, inflicts on the economy. I love that analogy to, to holding the weights in, in the gym. That's a great analogy, um, Tom. Hey, Alex Massioli, can I bring you into this for a second? I mean, is there a, is there a relationship? Is this a, and and Nick as well? Is this where where Bitcoin gets a boost? Is, do, when they see this start happening, does this create, you know, same way when the Fed kept raising rates for there was a minute where Bitcoin was responding or no correlation? And I know Alex, you come out of the hedge fund side, so you're looking at both sides. I, I do, I do, but uh, I'm going to let Nick take this one since he sits and runs our research desk and has better insight to it than I do. I appreciate you tossing it over, Alex. Um, and, you know, I think, Mark, a, a year ago when we had a little bit more um, liquidity in the system and a little bit more interest uh, and a little bit more, you know, volume, just just we're, we're in a bit of a different paradigm. And, and, and as much as I would like to say that it would have an impact, um, you're, I mean, you, you, you saw a, a $750 million promised buy only shove us up about 3 4%. Um, and, and when you kind of see things like that, you you really start to question what's it going to take to move us. So let's say a year from now, uh, we, we have a clearer vision on rates. Uh, there's a little bit more belief in the system uh, as well as regulatory overhang is a little bit more clear. I would definitely say uh, positive impact. But uh, today it's very, very What is the that. point of the Bitcoin alt currency if it's not responding to the negative stuff in the markets? <laughs> Well, well, some might say, you know, from the store value perspective, you know, maybe a maxi perspective may say, I'm kind of glad it doesn't. You know, I, I want uh, I want my Bitcoin to not respond to every little piece of news and, and market action and, and be an independent asset class. But I'll tell you what, Alex and I definitely disagree with that, considering how we typically make our money and, and interact in the markets. But, uh, you know, over time, you know, we still have that belief in Bitcoin and, um, you know, it, it always goes through these lull periods, you know, so I don't want everyone to be surprised and upset set that we're not getting all the action and volatility and uh and reactions but uh you know i wish i had more for your right. but we, uh you know it's sign of the volatility tom um let's talk about the yen carry trade for a second um i again 
give us the quick, the layperson's quick explanation. Obviously, you're moving, you know, you're, you're, you're leveraging between different interest rates. But what's going on with it? Why is it significant that it's the yen and the central bank of Japan? And what does it mean for U.S. traders? So essentially, the yen carry trade is this, is that if I'm a large institution or a very sophisticated money manager, what I can do is I can borrow money in yen in Japan, and I pay 0% interest because their interest rates are essentially zero, excuse me, 0% or close enough to it. I can then bring that money over to the United States and I can convert it to dollars and I can turn around and buy U.S. treasuries yielding 3 4 percent uh, or buy high-tech growth stocks, as Mark said, or buy whatever other speculative asset, I think. And as long as as it works, I make a scat of money because I am paying nothing on the mar- money that I'm borrowing. I'm getting all the return, right? If I have to unwind that, it can create selling in those assets. So the yen carry trade over the years has been has appeared. Last time we saw it, I think in this size, and Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, please. I think it was like mid-2000s uh, was when we were seeing it in this sort of size uh, because the interest rate differential between treasuries and Japanese government bonds is now really, really big. So again, I can borrow money at zero and buy the bond and make three, four, five percent, edge out the FX, the currency risk, and on the way. Mark, would you call this? Uh, why you as a trader? Why are you worried about this? I mean, would you? Is this an easy money trade that has, you know, a, a cutting in between what Tom's saying, some some scary implications, or it, it, it's you know, or is it indefinite? This this could lead this bad something bad happens. You no, know, it it, uh, it it's been a very easy money trade, Rob. For those that are able to to do it, um, this is not something that, as, as Tom points out, that an individual investor is going to uh, take and to structure, but. You know, based on the money flows, based on a lot of research that's been done uh, into this yen carry trade, because it's it's you know virtually free borrowed money because of a zero interest rate environment, it does tend to find its way into higher risk assets, right? And higher risk assets. The last time that this happened, and the last time that there was a change in monetary policy by the Bank of Japan, and the yen carry trade was adjusted negatively, it was tech that got hurt. And I think the market, and this was a, a, a an announcement by um, BOJ Bank of Japan uh, for last Friday. So this is not necessarily uh, breaking news. We're trying to see how it unfolds. That the Bank of Japan does intend to start to modify monetary policy and come off that zero interest rate uh, uh, stance. Not totally surprising, given the state of the economy in Asia and Japan. The market kind of knew that it eventually had to happen, but the timing of it took the market, particularly currency and bond traders, a little bit by surprise. And it's the addition of that. If the yen carry trade should unwind at the same time that we are facing all of the other credit problems that we've just been discussing, what's happening in treasuries, $108 million in new paper, potential credit event, can't buy UST, if UST is now downgraded, you have to buy AAA, less demand. You got to bring the prices up even further to create more yield, to create demand. You can see that it starts to sound like a snowball rolling down downhill. And, and in a worst case scenario, and I did a TV spot a couple of hours ago where I said, I am not advocating that this is going to be a worst case scenario. I am not saying this is an apocalyptic moment and the market's going to crash. I want to be clear about that for our listeners. 
But what I am saying is you got to keep an eye on this stuff. And this is a little more than macro, right, Tom? I mean, this is macro, but it's micro macro. As you start to understand the um, nuances of money flows and where money comes from to go into treasuries, where it, does it come out of equities? Yes. It hey, Tom. What often? Oh, sorry. No, I was going to say, Tom, to, to, to the point Mark was just making a second ago, though, because B3 Nation, I know you're all, all listening, as Mark said earlier. What, how does this affect me? What, what does this mean for me? What, what indicators, Tom, are you looking at or would you recommend people watch? To, to uh, When Mark said last time it took, hit the tech industry, what are you going to keep your eye on to see if we're heading towards something that's going to have a broader market impact? And what could somebody out there pay attention to to go, huh, maybe maybe I should be careful here? Yeah, so I think that, that first off, the 10-year Treasury yield, which is around, I think, like 4.19%. So that should be, I think it's very close today. That's something you want to watch. That needs to stop going up so quickly in order for, for this risk to be diminished. The faster it goes up, the more of a risk it is to stocks. The second thing I would look at is some of these these names that have benefited from the AI, you know, kind of craze slash mania. I think Mark is dead on to something here. If you have speculative money in there, so, you know, look at your NVIDIAs, right? Look at your AMDs. To a lesser to to a lesser degree, look at some of these large cap tech. It's not it's and and Mark is again right because this is this isn't one event that blows everything up. It's death by a thousand cuts, right? It's treasury issuance. It's the reversal of the end carry trade. Uh, it's rising yields, sucking money out of equities because hey, gee, now I can get five six percent risk free as long as I can hold the bond until maturity. I think look at the NASDAQ. That's led markets all year. If all of a sudden that thing starts dropping like it did on Wednesday, that's also a negative signal because that's kind of the, for lack of a better word, kind of frothiest part of the market. And you want that to behave. If that starts showing some serious weakness, I think it portends something more substantial, especially if yields keep Man, there's nothing I like less than things that are death by a thousand cuts. I'm just going to say it's the hardest way to go. Okay, we got time for one more couple minutes on each one last TradFi topic. Um, I mentioned it earlier. Yeah, everybody knows there's a um, the Farmer's Almanac. For I was a farm kid. You know, we, yeah, we, we, people still use it for like 100 plus years. I didn't know there was a stock trader's almanac, Mark. I do know that, you know, you, you, that, that there is a trend in the beginning, uh, according to the stock traders almanac, the first nine days or so of August have not historically been great. That doesn't mean they won't be. But why is that? As a historical trend, not based on what's just something that happened yesterday, that because that doesn't happen every year. And how much credit do you give to that? Well, you know, as we often say, Rob, you know, that trends are important and historical trends are important because history does repeat itself. Not 100% of the time, of course, but it does repeat itself a good amount of the time. This is one, and I don't have the percentage in front of me, that actually I think has repeated itself a, a good number on a, a good amount of time on a percentage basis. What do you attribute it to? Well, that's changed. Um, you know, the sell, sell in May and go when July and August, particularly the first week of August, was traditionally a doldrum month for trading. Not so much the case in modern times and certainly not so far this summer. You know, we covered that on, I think, the last show, the sell away, the sell and may and go ways, maybe an antiquated uh, uh, approach. Uh, but yeah, the first nine days in August 
have historically, more often than not, I think it's more than 51% of the time, have been pretty negative and dragged down uh, equities, both S&P, uh, NASDAQ, et cetera. So that's, again, you know, these are all data points. It's not, not, I want to be careful to our listeners. None of these things that we're talking about are like, ah, bang, that's dispositive. That's going to drive the market or that's going to drive a particular stock up or down one direction or the other. These are all data points that we look at that we use to form an opinion as to the direction of the markets, both at a macro level as well as in the individual indices. And if we look at that stock traders' almanac, which, by the way, Rob, is almost as old as the farmer's almanac, not as old, but it's been around for Did not a know long time. Um, it's been around for a long time. Uh, it's been slightly after the Buttonwood Agreement, and, and bonus points to our listeners that know what that is. Um, but it has been around for a while. And when you add, you know, these different factors together, right? If you say, well, you know, Mark and Tom might be right about this, you know, credit uh, crisis thing. You know, they've been looking at that ten-year, forty-eight basis points in forty-eight hours is massive. Not massive for a stock for the ten-year. That is a massively quick and significant move, as I'm sure Tom will agree. What else do I want to look at to tell me whether or not the market's going to end the week up or down? Well, hey, 51 plus percent of the time, first nine days of August were negative for a variety of reasons. Maybe that's where we're going to wind up. And I'm going to take us, I'm going to make a bet right now and say we wind up in the red again tomorrow. We have a close, we have a week that closes down across all three major indices. That's my to say just quickly, do you follow this the, the stock traders almanac? Do you add is that does that factor into your your considerations? Um, it, it, it does. I've, i I'm aware of it. I wouldn't say I'd follow it, but I do kind of check it, you know, and, 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 you know, it, it doesn't dictate everything, but I do love it. I am a student of market history. You know, I started my career on the floor of the, the New York stock exchange and was sort of baptized with a lot of mar market history by Arthur Cashin and some of those other guys that have been down there for forever. So I do respect it. I think everybody in the market should absolutely be aware of it. Because to Mark's point, uh, history does not repeat itself exactly, but it often does. But it, it often does. You're listening to Bulls, Bears, and Blacks on Twitter Spaces. This is our Thursday show. We do Tuesday, Thursday, a weekend show on Sunday, 530 Eastern Time, all at Get Rev Radio. Please follow us there. Follow all our speakers. Tom, feel free to stay on for the rest of the show. We're switching gears, uh, and we're going to talk a little crypto right now. Alex, what is going on? So I this there's a new development um, it, it, and, and this was like from 2016, right? Um, the Razzle cans. I mean, take us through kind of what happened. It was it was the big hack of Bitfinex, and it was huge, right? I mean, they, they took a hundred, couple hundred thousand, hundred thousand Bitcoin or something. What's happening now? Suddenly? Yeah, listen, I, I remember this hack extremely well. And when this happened, it was at the time valued at $70 million, right? So it's a big, it, that's a lot of money to anybody, except maybe you, Rob. We know you're a world player. But um, what what that money, what that 119,000 Bitcoin that was hacked turned into with price appreciation was four and a half billion dollars um so you fast forward from 2016 uh to the 2020s and you have this couple and i'm not going to try to pronounce their names uh because i'm not good at that um but she's an aspiring rapper i didn't want to do it uh, i didn't want to say their names i mess them up and, and she's a she's a poorly expressed rapper uh on on social media and stuff like that it's it's almost uh, it, it's really just bad. But 
what they were doing is they had custody of this four and a half billion dollars in Bitcoin. And the gentleman proceeded to, uh, and uh, voluminous is not even the right word. The amount of transactions in trying to wash uh, the crypto in this case in order to bring it back into fiat dollars was enormous. Uh, they made numerous trips to uh, Kazakhstan and to uh, Russia. They opened up uh, uh, various bank accounts over there. Um, they and funneled it back to the U.S. through a fake uh, bank account or a fake business here. Um, but at this time, we had four and a half billion dollars in price, and it's a that's a lot to launder. You can't just you can't just throw it through a car wash. Um, they were arrested last January in 2022, and people made a lot of fun and made memes about them. Uh, because of how they acted. Well, guess what? It turns out uh, today in Washington, uh, the he made a plea deal um, for this case and admitted to being the hacker. Uh, so he apparently hid this from his wife, uh, and she only started getting suspicious in 2020. Um, and it is the single largest seizure of financial assets by the Department of Justice in U.S. history. So they haven't been sentenced yet. I get a lot of questions today. I know, dude, how much are they getting sentenced? I don't know. They're going through sentencing phase. Um, but he, uh, yeah, so I'm going to let Nick so, comment on this because he's so, a resident. So Nick, so Nick, and I'm going to say their names. It's Ela Lichtenstein and and the rapper's real name is Morgan. Razzlecon is is her name. Um, and Nick, yeah, you are the resident degen. And one of the questions on my mind about all this is, well, one is whether they go to prison. I'm assuming the plea deal doesn't keep them from prison totally. But what does it mean putting that seizing, putting that, does that money, bringing that Bitcoin back have any impact on the market? Is it? Yeah, so... That that's actually a great question, and, and and you know just my two cents. You know the the wife's not knowing. I mean, come on, she was she was being aspiring to be a, a rapper and and doing all these things. So that that just sounds a little bit crazy, just from my perspective. But in terms of the asset seizures, I mean the uh, the U.S. government still owns a um, vast majority of their Silk Road uh, seizures as well as a few other seizures, uh, and I believe their their holdings are are a billion prior to this seizure. So that they're gonna you know obviously stick those numbers up uh, as we move forward. And and typically what that means, and I, I forget exactly what the date was, but I want to say April 14th on the charts was uh, a massive, massive spike up and then sell, or, and, then, and then it sold off. And, and the sell was actually the U.S. government that they reported uh, a couple days after. So when the U.S. government does sell, it can make a massive impact by, you know, slapping price down a few thousand dollars. And especially if they decide to TWAP, which is, you know, kind of a, in an average sell over a specific amount of time to obviously offload a large amount that doesn't impact the market, uh, you know, majorly, i.e., you know, several percentage points or more, uh, that could obviously have a negative impact as well. Let's say they sell some of their Bitcoin while Michael Saylor is buying his Bitcoin. That would have a pretty much negative impact on the charts if they're selling just as much as he's buying. So this is something we're going to have to keep track of. And it's yet another gray cloud over crypto's head because the government can can pretty much sell off any rally right now just based on the volume that- Wait, are you saying- so Wait, are you saying would intentionally do that? 
I think I would not put it past them, especially with the current administration. Now, what future administrations may do, you know, they, they may not want to impact the market like this. Maybe they have other motives. But certainly uh, we have already seen the Biden administration impact crypto rallies uh, in, in a major way. So I wouldn't it would not shock me if they did it again. Alex, get your job. No, uh, of course. Well, it's not even the tinfoil when it comes to this. Sometimes I don't wear that hat. Um, but, you know, they're they're going to trade it just like uh, just like any other smart money trader like Mark, John, Nick uh, is going to do. And they're going to sell. They're going to sell them to strength. Um, and, uh, you know, to Nick's to Nick's comment, it, it, it's true. They can they have the volume right now in order to suppress a diehard rally. But them selling the strength, I, I'd keep a, an eye out for it. We track it and trade the chain um, just to make sure we don't fall into any honey. Well, you, well we know what yeah, happened. One thing I'll add, we know when it happened. Oh, one thing, yeah, exa that's exactly what I was going to say, Rob. So the, the fortunate thing about the blockchain is that all of these wallets are tagged and sourced. So we know where the Bitcoin uh, or where the Silk Road Bitcoin is sitting. We will eventually find out where this uh, amount of crypto is sitting once, you know, everything kind of all the dust settles, so to speak. Uh, but whenever those do get moved, especially to exchanges, that's the red flag that goes up in everybody's book and says buy puts um you know uh, sell uh add shorts etc so so we will know and this is something alex and i track dearly on the trade the chain chart is these uh inflows to exchanges because when crypto goes on exchanges it's typically bearish when stable coins go on exchanges it's typically bullish so if we see u.s government moving to uh to coinbase wallets that's going to be a major red flag in our book well that was going to be my last bit question on this too by the way to both of you um, they're going to have to do this through Coinbase, right? Maybe they should keep it open first a little bit longer. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. It would it would very likely be Coinbase. Um, I very much doubt they would use Kraken or Bitstamp, and, and it has not shown to be the case in which they, they have not done that before is the easiest way to say that. So Coinbase is the likely option. But the good thing is, is no matter where they move to, as long as it's an exchange, if we see government to exchange, big red flag drop. And Alex, um, does if they do move this huge amount and they sell it on Coinbase, does that have any effect on the on the regulators, on pressure on Gary Gensler, on the Bitcoin ETFs? There absolutely no correlation. If the government suddenly is moving this much Bitcoin out. Well, that, that's a great question, Rob. And we've debated this among uh, all of us here on this show. You know, they selected Coinbase in, in order to facilitate uh, liquidity transactions for their seizures. <clears throat> Yet, excuse me. Yet. Uh, the SEC is actively pursuing them. Um, we also saw very interesting timing in the fact that there's been a lot of traction, a lot of momentum and sentiment on BlackRock spot ETF. Uh, but then suddenly there's a, you know, investigation opened up on their China activity. So, I, you know, it, it, who knows? I don't think there's one hand talking to the other. We've seen this with the CFTC and the SEC fighting over uh, enforcement control. Um, so as far as the DOJ using Coinbase while they're simultaneously getting, uh, you know, sued by another agency, it baffles me. I, I definitely would love to hear Mark's closing comment. Exactly. I was going to say, Mark, this is a perfect segue for you to, to the whole idea and how this also this affects, you know, does this have an impact in the trad markets when it's this much or no, no, not at all. Uh, I don't think it impacts the trend market. The trend markets are much more concerned with the trillions of dollars in money flushing around 
in, in the in the fixed income world, as we were just saying. Um, I think that the government will definitely use Coinbase. Um, you know, they can always use Binance, but something tells me that's not going to happen. Um, and and do, do, I, do I put it past uh, that to uh, be suing and trying to shut that, that, that enterprise down on the one hand uh, while simultaneously uh, utilizing their services to liquidate portfolio? Absolutely not. I think that's exactly what they're going to do. And while we're talking about Coinbase, I just checked. I don't see earnings yet, but the stock is facing some pressure in the after. It's below 90. Nick, do you see any news on your side on Coinbase earnings? No, um, you know, nothing too major. We uh, Monty, actually, one of our analysts at uh, Trade the Chain, covered this uh, very well on our show earlier today. His prediction was positive earnings with a quick pop-up and then a sell-off due to just general crypto sentiment in the industry right now. So we did, in fact, get that pop-up and that sell-off. And anytime that happens, you know, I, I consider that kind of it. It wasn't exactly a failure pattern, but it creates, um, you know, what we call a, a pretty pretty ugly candle uh, in price action for what we're going to pro probably look at tomorrow. So um, anytime things pop up and go straight back down is never a good sign, even with positive earnings. And interestingly enough, interestingly enough, Mark, we've had a uh, sell-off in, in the intra-hour market uh, with crypto. So as we go into hearing what they're looking at. Interesting. interesting. You guys love when I say interesting. That's my way to switch gears for one second. I'm kidding. But but Mark and 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 my question on the regular markets is more around companies, you know, and this was going to be the last time. We only have like three minutes, but but I noticed that, that Jack Dorsey's block announced their second quarter revenue was five and a half billion and half of it was Bitcoin. So would this be something that's going to encourage more companies to carry more Bitcoin? I mean, that's a lot of income. No, not at all. The answer is no. No, not in this current regulatory environment. I don't think any, even though Bitcoin is allegedly safe and we know what it is and it's, you know, it's not a fish to foul, it's not a security, it's a currency, it's not a future, blah, blah, blah. I don't see this getting past anybody in a, in a board meeting in this current regulatory environment or with the volatility associated with it. And I'll, I'll say one thing, even though I know you didn't ask me, but it was something I wanted to point out when we were still talking about what happens with Bitcoin if we get a credit event? If we do get a credit event and we see continued sell-off in the end carry trade, we see continued pressure and lack of demand in the Fed's next auction to that $108 billion in Fed paper that they just announced they're going to sell. I think Bitcoin rallies. I don't know by how much. I'd have to turn to Nick for that range. But I don't see how... Even on speculation that, look, this is why we need a blockchain-based currency versus the complete and total shenanigans of print as much money as you need until you can't print anymore, because that's unfortunately part of the part of the story. It does not end well. But I don't see how Bitcoin doesn't rally, even if it's a short-lived, on that kind of action with respect to monetary policy. And Nick, your quick thought on that? You know, I, as much as I would like to agree with you, Rob, um, you know, anytime we've seen a shock, uh, it's certainly, you know, crypto is the is the first shoe to drop, unfortunately, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of leads the risk category, if you will. So I'm not so sure about that. But I, I would actually very much love for you to prove me hey. wrong. Um, but uh, Another thing that I wanted to mention on top of this, because we're talking about Biden, is did, did you guys see his laser eyes today on that mug? Oh. I, I didn't know what the heck to well, think of that. It's on the mug. I missed it. But we'll, we'll, try, we'll try to open the mail with frame. Pick it up there. Hey, real quickly, before we wrap up, 
to um, to Nick, to you or Alex, do you think so, more, I know Alex's point, you know, companies, you get that to a boardroom, but are we going to see more younger tech companies starting to carry a lot more digital assets, including Bitcoin on their balance sheets, like Jack Dorsey's doing with Block? My short answer is no, not in the short term, uh, not with the current environment that we've all spoken about. Um, but I'll let Nick, who is, uh, you know, our DGen, uh, get some speculation on this. Uh, I mean, I have a few theories on this. I don't think any CFO or CEO, the first thing they do is say, mm, we're well capitalized, let's go buy Bitcoin. Um, but I do think that, you know, if the regulatory environment changes or or even if some sort of life comes into crypto, such as, you know, more stable coin uh, purchases, we, we've seen actually a drop in kind of the quote unquote crypto money supply. Uh, and that has obviously correlated with a, an overall drop in price action. But I think if we can, if you can get over that 32 to 34, 4K range hump, I do think that there would be a, a large uh, amount of interest that comes back into crypto just because of the, the technicals on the chart and what happens when Bitcoin breaks back into previous ranges and, and parabolic right, uh, right. times. So I do think it'll force them to take a look. But again, probably not going to happen. Hey, next Michael year, so. Saylor, Michael Saylor, he's pushing that boat. You guys, this was a, a, a fun conversation. I want to thank everybody. Thomas, I think is gone. We lost John in the middle that's why he wasn't talking b3 nation thanks for listening it's always an adventure with you guys um we'll be back again sunday 5 30 eastern time thanks to our sponsor uh 22nd century oh wait i just said their name backwards uh, 22nd century um i said it right my dyslexia work b3 nation thanks to you guys john mark alex nick and our special guest thomas a thanks for doing this we'll see you all soon Thanks for joining Rob Nelson, Alex Massioli, Mark Lapresti, and John Nigerian with another great episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain twice a week on Revolution Radio. Whether you're new to the world of Web3 finance or an experienced investor, we've got you covered. Follow us on Twitter at GetRevRadio and visit our website at revolutionradio.io, helping you make smarter financial decisions. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.